Good morning. If you would, please turn to Acts chapter 12. We'll be in Acts chapter 12 today, going through the whole chapter. And when I say going through the whole chapter, I really mean like three quarters, maybe two thirds of the chapter, and then summing up the rest, just because it's a lot, but we try to keep you moving through the book so we're not in Acts for like 10 years. So, Acts chapter 12, we'll read through the whole chapter, and then we'll dive into it. Acts 12. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in a prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. The earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, 
and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are the only one that can uh, apply your truth to our hearts and cause it to take root and germinate and produce fruit in our lives and uh, cause us to, to grow Cause us to grow in love, cause us to grow in patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness. Lord, these are not merely things that we can do on our own, Lord, but you have to do it. And you have ordained that it is through your word, it is through uh, the gathering of believers together, just encouraging one another through the singing of truth about you, that you edify us. So I pray that you would use this text now, this morning, to just illumine our hearts and cause us to rejoice, cause us to see new wonders in it, and praise the God of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I am astounded by in a new way this morning is just the ordinary means of grace that God uses to bring us back to Him, to stir us up, to cause us to fall more deeply in love with Him, to turn us away from whatever was uh, stealing our attention during the week, causing us to drift from God during the week. Things like singing the truths that we were just talking about, or even just being here amongst believers. This is Really, my first time in, in three weeks. I know that's weird that the preacher doesn't show up to church. But we had the men's camping trip, and then I had a wedding last week, so I haven't been here in, in two weeks. And just being around believers again, you, you, you forget how much we need that on a consistent basis to be around one another. And then even more so, over this past week, it was, it was one of those weeks for me where... You just feel like, for whatever reason, you feel distant from the Lord. You feel like you're not in your word as much. Um, you feel like you have a shorter temper with your wife. Um, at least I, probably, I did. Um, but just one of those weeks you feel distant. And it was really in studying for this sermon and just diving into the text and just praying that the Lord would just reveal to me His truth that I was amazed again and just he just lit a flame in my heart, caused me to have a, a renewed passion for him. Um, and this text is, is truly just beautiful. So one of the things I wanted to do, or what I wanted to do today, is just, just walk through the text, really. We're not going to break it down into individual points. I just want us to see what God has done in this text. And I guarantee you there is so much rich truth here in this text that upon just reading through it the first time like we just did, you don't catch all of it. But it's, it's an encouragement to, to study the Word, dig into God's text, and pray that He would reveal it to you. So with that being said... Verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
that first of all, who is this Herod? This is, this is Herod Agrippa I. There are several Herods that ruled in Jerusalem. This was Herod Agrippa I. And he actually ruled from, from 41 A.D. to 44 A.D. when he died. And that's one of the reasons why we can know when this text is taking place. The fact that he's ruling right now in this text. And he's in Jerusalem at this time. And he's not yet dead. We know that this story happened around 42, 43 A.D. But anyway, this, this king, he was beloved by the Jews. The Jews were absolutely in love with him because he was described even as a, a, um, an old Jewish historian named Josephus. He describes this king and says that he was, he was generous. He gave large donations to the Jewish people. He was always amongst the Jewish people. He would spend time with them in the streets. He would walk with them through the streets. He would uh, very meticulously observe all the Jewish customs and the rituals. And he was just a generally kind man to the Jewish people. Prior to this king coming to the throne, his uncle, who ruled before him, who was also named Herod, he was a ruthless man. He was was cruel. He uh, took more funds from the people than he needed. He sucked up to the the foreign countries, the Greek countries. He would spend all the Jewish money building baths and temples and porticos and all this stuff in foreign countries and letting his people suffer, not spending the money on him. So when this Herod came to the throne, the people were were refreshed. They were in love with this man. And he knew that he needed to maintain that power amongst the people. So when this Christian movement sprang up, this this wave of Christianity that threatened to disturb the, the tranquil waters of Judaism, he knew that it needs to be eliminated. And so what did he do? Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He took out a high-profile target in the Christian community, similar to how we would, like, a a high-ranking Al-Qaeda operative. Like, this was a key, pivotal leader in this new movement, and he wanted to take out one of these key leaders. And and James, James was one of the original 12 disciples that that walked with Jesus. He, for three years, had had sat at Jesus' feet and just drank continually from the the fountain of wisdom that that sprang from Jesus' lips and constantly observed his gracious, majestic, authoritative uh, conduct amongst the common people of Jerusalem. For three years... He studied at Jesus' feet and became a a pivotal leader in the church. And so Herod executes him by the sword. And about this being executed by the sword, I love what one commentator says. He says, James is probably beheaded as John the Baptist was, although if some Jewish sensibilities are maintained, he might have just been run through with the sword. So in other words... They might have chopped off his head, but if they wanted to say, ah, oh, that's, too, that's too grotesque, we want to be more sensible about these, this thing, why don't we just run a sword through him? Um, so he kills James with the sword, and we don't know exactly the way that he did it, but the point is that he's able to, to eliminate this threat, and apparently the Jews are are ecstatic about this. They are pleased with it. Verse 3 says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. 
So it's like he kills, he kills this one man, the crowd roars, and he like gets all excited seeing that he's got the approval of everybody, so he tries to grab another high-ranking official in the Christian church and says, well, I'll just keep this thing going. I'm on fire right now. Um, but look at what it says next. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Now just pause. This is an example of when you, when you study the, the scriptures, when you read through the scriptures, don't read quickly over little details like this. When it says this was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and we just say, well, I don't know what that means. Oh, well, and I'll keep going. No, dive into what, what this means. Study and ask, what, what is the Feast of Unleavened Bread? What's going on right now? What is the author trying to communicate to me? Because this feast, understanding what's going on right now, is absolutely critical to seeing everything that's happening in this text. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. What, what was the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, you have to go back... All the way back to Exodus in the beginning of the Bible. Exodus chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. The passage that we want to look at will be eventually up there. But beginning of the Bible, the people of God, the Israelites, they're, they're in slavery in Egypt. They've been in slavery for 400 years, suffering terribly under the hand of Pharaoh. God comes to them. He, he calls a man named Moses to raise this leader up as the one who's going to go to Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh release God's people and let them go free to worship him. Pharaoh refuses. And so God tells Moses that he's going to bring ten plagues upon the Egyptians to try to convince Pharaoh to, to change his mind. And by the time that we're in Exodus chapter 12, the first nine plagues have happened. Locusts have come, frogs have come, boils have come upon the Egyptians, leaving the Jewish people unharmed, unscathed, protected the whole time. But the first nine plagues have happened. And God has just told Moses what the tenth plague will be. That is, he's going to come through Egypt and wipe out the firstborn child of every Egyptian household, sparing entirely the people of God. And he tells Moses that this is what you are to do on this night, on this night when, when I come through and, and wipe out the firstborn. You're to take a sacrificial lamb. You're to take its blood and sacrifice it. Take its blood, wipe it on the doorpost of your house, so that when I come through... To, to wipe out the firstborn, I will identify the houses that have been covered by the blood of this sacrificial lamb. I will pass over those houses, that's where we get the Passover from, and I will only enter into the Egyptian houses. So this is, this is what's happening. And then, and then this is what he says, this is what God says to Moses that they are to do that night. In preparation for this event, he says that they are to eat unleavened bread. Now, leaven, what's, what is unleavened bread? Leaven is a rising agent that you put in dough, similar to yeast or baking soda or baking powder. And any of you who have made bread before, you know that the way that you make it is you make the dough, you add the yeast and everything on that, and then you set it aside before you bake it so that the dough can rise for a period of hours and then you bake it so that the bread is fluffy and, and, and tastes good and all that. But what if you don't have time to allow the bread to just sit and rise for a few hours? What if you're in a rush? 
then you don't add the yeast, you don't allow the bread to rise, you just bake it immediately, and the bread's not as good, it doesn't rise, it's, it's, it's tense, it's, it's dense, um, but you at least have something to eat. And the reason God tells his people to, to eat this unleavened bread is because they're going to need to move quickly after this plague happens, after the firstborn are wiped out, and Pharaoh is sort of out of it, and he allows Moses to go and take the people out of Egypt. They need to be able to, to leave quickly. And so this is what he says on how they are to eat it in Exodus chapter 12, verses 11 through 14. This is what God says. He says, In this manner you shall eat it. That's the bread. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood, that's the blood that they sprinkled or they wiped on their doorpost, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day, this day, this Passover, this eating of the unleavened bread, will be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So, God tells the people that the plague that he's about to bring is going to wipe out all the firstborn of Egypt. And uh, it's going to cause Pharaoh to change his mind. The people of God are going to be able to, to go free. And that the reason... the Due to the fact that it's happening so quickly, when they eat this unleavened bread, basically all that talk about having your sandals on, having your cloak wrapped, is like, be ready, be dressed, be ready to go, such that when this happens, you can walk right out the door. And so that's, that's what surrounded this, this feast of unleavened bread. And so in this, in this feast now, for subsequent generations, every time they eat this unleavened bread, what they're doing is remembering the Passover, remembering that night when the people of God ate this unleavened bread and were ready because God was going to wipe out all the firstborn of their enemies, protect them, deliver them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the promised land. That's what this feast is about. That's what's going on during these days of unleavened bread. That's what's on people's minds. That's critical to remember. What's even more is Christians, Jewish Christians now, know that the Passover wasn't just its own little isolated event. But the Passover itself, it pointed forward to the time when Jesus would sacrifice the ultimate sacrificial lamb. He would sacrifice himself for his people, for their sins, die for them, and his blood would, in a sense, cover them, and God would not punish the people for their sins, but would pass over their sins. The Christians knew that this, this event is ultimately about us. That's what they're thinking of. That's what they're celebrating God for doing in this time. For preserving His people, protecting His people, remembering how He preserved the firstborn back in the Exodus. But what just happened in this story? What just happened in verse 2? One of their own was not protected. 
he was killed. During these days when they're just thinking about how much God has protected them, how much he has delivered them, how much Jesus is their sacrificial lamb, and yet how could God let one of their own suffer and be killed? Even more than that, I think that there's a a subtext here, which just means something that the author wants you to know, even though he doesn't explicitly say it in this text. But if you just read the rest of the text around it, you you understand. And that's that James, James the one who was killed, he is one of two twins. He's, he's, He's from a set of twins. And yet, scholars are pretty certain that James himself was the firstborn of the two even if it were only by a few minutes. Because every time that you see James and, and his twin brother John introduced in the scriptures, they're identified as James, the son of Zebedee, that's his father, and his brother John. So like when, when, when Jesus is going through finding his disciples to, to call them, to draw them to himself, to, to groom them for three years, to send them out uh, to proclaim the gospel, in Matthew 4:21. It says about Jesus, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. So this emphasis on on James, the fact that he's the one identified as the son of Zebedee, is is consistent with that culture that that emphasized the right of the firstborn son as the one who who inherits all that is his father's. He's the one that's identified as the son of the father with all of his other siblings alongside of him. So James then, he's the firstborn son of his household. See how that complicates things even further for the Christian Christian Jews. Not only has God not protected them during this this time that they're remembering how God protects them, but he allowed the firstborn son of one of the most prominent Christian families at this time to be killed. Can you just imagine the confusion that's going on in their minds right now? They're wondering that, they're thinking that one of two scenarios is possible, or they're tempted to think. Either the, our God now is not the same God that led us out of Egypt. He's not the same God that protected our people and led us out of the Passover. Because how could he let this happen to this, this new Christian movement? We're the people of God. We're the ones that are supposed to be protected and watched over and guided. Or secondly, maybe we're not truly the people of God. Maybe this whole Christianity thing is, is false. Maybe, maybe we're more like the Egyptians in the story. It was the, it was the Egyptians that had their firstborn wiped out. And so how, why are we suffering? Maybe we're on the wrong path. This doubt, confusion, wondering. It, their life just seems like an apparent contradiction. And just have you just have you been there? Can you can you identify with just being at a point where your world seems to indicate, but there's no way that the God that I read about read about in this old book is the same God that would allow this to happen? I know you have. Get there with them right now, because what God does in the rest of this story is amazing. Just, I want you to remember four things about the, the passage that we brought out and 
in Exodus 12. When God was describing how they were to eat the unleavened bread, just remember four things from this passage because they're going to be important in the rest of our passage. One, that they were told to eat with their belt fastened, which is another way of saying that they needed to be wearing their their cloak or their their outer garment because the belt is what fastens your, your outer garment. That's number one. Number two, they were told to put on their sandals. Keep your sandals on. Be ready to go. Number three, they were told to move quickly with haste because they're going to need to exit Egypt quickly when Pharaoh allows them to go. And number four, this is actually in in the text around that immediate passage, but it was the angel of the Lord, this mysterious figure that shows up throughout the Old Testament, this angel of the Lord, he's the one that leads them ultimately out of Egypt. Those four things. Remember those. Now, really quickly, everything that, that, that Herod does in verse 4, after we see that he's captured Peter and the crowd is behind him, it's like the author uses verse 4 to just, to just give you the sense that Herod is in absolute control at this point, at least according to Herod. It says in verse 4, And when he had seized him, that's Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Basically, he seized him, he put his hands on, on Peter the way that he wanted to, he put Peter where he wanted to put him, in prison, he delivered him over to four squads, That's a squad was a group of four soldiers, so four groups of four soldiers, that was 16 soldiers, and the reason that one would do that is to have a, a rotation of who was watching him, they rotate like every three hours, a squad would watch him for three hours, another squad would come in so that they would stay alert, nobody would fall asleep, he would be under 24 hours surveillance. Valence, it's like Guantanamo Bay. He would be, he'd be chained to two of the soldiers, and two of the soldiers would stand at the entrance of the prison. Like, there is no getting out of this situation. That's the point. And Herod knows exactly what Peter's fate will be. As soon as this whole feast and celebration is over, he's going to bring Peter out to the people, this Jewish people, and by that point, they'll know what's going to happen. They're going to ask for his execution. He will be killed. There's no way out of this situation. That's the point of verse 4. And verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And then the story just goes into another scene. Like it doesn't even tell you what the result of their prayer was. Like... I just love the fact that, that it, it shows Herod as this, this one who is seated in a position of power and he's buttressed by, by unlimited resources. It's like he's behind a, a fortified wall of a united Jewish people who all support his decision. He is like untouchable and it's him against this ragtag, exposed, wounded now militia of Christians who have no weapons except one prayer. Who will win? That's how this, this scene is set up. Now, verses six through eleven. I wanna I wanna read I wanna read through these quickly first, just so you get a, a sense of 
Peter's experience. That this is what happens next in this scene is is dizzying even even to Peter, and and even he doesn't catch all that's happening. But when we go back through it, we'll see that what God does in this scene is profound. Verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Remember, he's tied to two of them. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. The other two were at the front of the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was only seeing a vision. This is just chaos. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said... Now just that, that last verse, when, when he came to himself, like when he was able to get his senses because it's so dizzying. Now... What just happened? Let's look at a couple of these details. Look at verse 7. Angel of the Lord shows up. We don't know how the guards fall asleep, but we're just, we, we just start right in this, this moment. Somehow they're mysteriously put to sleep. Angel of the Lord shows up. He strikes Peter quickly on the side. He strikes Peter on the side and wakes him and, and says, Get up quickly. And the chains fall off his feet. Now, why is the angel in a rush? I mean, if he has the power to put these soldiers to sleep, is he really worried that, like, he didn't put enough sedative in their water or something? Like, they're going to get up quickly and then we'll both be stuck in prison? Like, is that, is that his worry? No, God is never in a wor- never rush. He's never in a hurry. There is a deeper theological purpose here. He tells him to move quickly. Do you remember what God said in the Exodus? You need to get up and move quickly. That's number one. He tells him to move with haste. Look at verse 8. Then he says to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, why, why are these, these details here in this story? I mean... This actually isn't the first time an angel shows up and rescues someone from the people of God in, in, uh, in even the book of Acts. Like if you were to go to, uh, I think, Acts chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. This was another instance a little earlier when some of the apostles were locked up and in prison. And when this an angel of the Lord shows up to rescue him, and he doesn't give the... There's no extra details about what he tells them about their dress and, and their conduct and stuff. It just says... But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Like, there's no extra details about what the angel said to them while they were in the prison of what they needed to do. In our text, the details are there, again, for a deeper theological reason. The angel tells them, Get up, move quickly. The angel tells him to put on his sandals. Remember the people in Exodus were told to wear your sandals, be ready to go. Secondly, the angel tells him, put on your cloak around you and follow me. 
Remember in the Exodus that God told the people, have your belt fastened. That means put on your cloak and have it fastened. Be ready to go. God tells him, put on your cloak and follow him. And he leads him out. This story so far is meant to allude back to the Exodus. And God is essentially showing that he is this same God that led his people out of an impossible uh, position of, of slavery, being bound and in chains in Egypt. This is the same God. He hasn't changed. His people, yes, they go through suffering, but this is the same God who watches over his people, who does the supernatural, who protects them, who guides them, who leads them. Verse 9 says, And he went out and followed him. He didn't know what was being done by the angel. Then verse 10 it says, when they had passed the first and second guard that are asleep in front, of the, in front of the prison, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. Now, first of all, when you come across iron gate, you, you know that like throughout the scriptures, iron is like a way of showing that this is an impenetrable uh, barrier. Like when God says that there's going to be famine in the land, that no rain is going to come down from heaven, he says the, the, the heavens, the skies are going to be like iron. Like, no water is going to come down. Or when he looks back at the Exodus and says that the people were stuck in Egypt without any way of getting out unless God rescued them, he says that they were stuck in in an iron furnace. Um, So this imagery, it could just be that the author is just describing the physical properties of this door, or there could be something else at play here. He could be trying to also symbolize that, this, that there's this wall that that's, can't be that he shouldn't be able to to pass through. I'm going to argue for that based on what happens immediately after this. It says that the door, the gate to the city, opened for them of its own accord. Now that whole phrase of its own accord is actually a, a single word in Greek. It's, it's automatos, which sounds like automatic, like it's, it's spelled the same way, A-U-T-O-M-A. I think I'm, I'm right so far. Automatos, like automatically, like the gate is open automatically without anyone needing to, to open it for him. And it's actually automatos, that's a very, very, very rare word. It only occurs like five times in the entire Old Testament. In four out of five of those times, it's just talking about the plants that grow up out of the ground and they produce their, their fruit automatos. They, they produce their fruit automatically. There's only one other time when it's used outside of that context that's interesting. After the Exodus, when the people, they leave, God leaves them out of Egypt they wander in the desert for 40 years only because they, they've disobeyed God. And so God is waiting for the next generation of Israelites to raise up so that he can continue this journey of the Exodus into the promised land that he promised them. When they come into the promised land, what's the first city that they encounter? Bible thumpers. Jericho, Jericho. Jericho is like the first city that they need to pass through in order to inherit the land, uh, the promised land. And it's the angel of the Lord that's still leading them out into the promised land. And God tells them, he tells them to, to you're not going to have to lay siege to this, to this wall, to this city, 
what I want you to do is to march around the city once every day for six days. On the seventh day, you march around seven times. And then, he says, the walls will fall automatos. They'll just fall down on their own. The gates to this city, this, this impenetrable city, are just going to fall down automatically for you. Because that, that word is so, so rare and it's never used except for this instance in, in Joshua and this time in Acts, we can be fairly certain that the author is intending to, to play upon this, this imagery. And when you put it all together, this is the picture that God is giving. He is the same God who led his people out of Egypt into the promised land that he is today. He's giving this, this subtle illusion picture to, to Peter and now for all of us, that even despite all these situations, he's the same God. He leads Peter out of, out of chains and enslavement. And, and he gives him the same sort of instructions that he gave the Israelites. And then he leads him into the city where the gates open down automatically. It's, it's all the same type of language. And that's just, that's just amazing that... That this God, I mean, one, that the word is just, is just crafted like that. That there's, there's so much that just, just sitting and just letting God teach you and just probe and just go, going through the scriptures and just asking questions. What does this mean? God can just open up the scriptures in incredible ways to show us his glory. And I love just, just how the, the story after this, when it, it says that, Peter came out, verse 11, um, he says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, now here's also what the author has just done with the structure of this text. He's done what's called like an inclusio. Um, take, take the picture of just a sandwich where you have a piece of bread and you have another piece of bread on the bottom and then you have meat in the middle where the two pieces of bread are like the same. That's sort of the structure of what happens in this text and what's all, what often happens in, as a literary device in the scriptures in that in verse 5 we heard that the people were praying and remember there was no answer. Then all this, this whole scene takes place Peter's delivered from prison, and then we come back, he gets out, and he sees that the people are praying. The reason that, that you set up a structure like that is, that is so that you can show that what happens in the middle of these two verses, verse 5, people are praying, verse 12, people are praying, you're meant to understand that everything in between, in between those two verses should be understood in light of those pieces of bread. Like, what God does to his people from verse 6 to 11, is because of what was happening in verse 5 and verse 12. The people of God were praying. This is an incredible answer to prayer, and, and apparently, according to the text, it's something that they weren't even expecting. It says that, verse 13, he gets to the house, and when he knocks at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. This little servant girl, her name means Little Rose. This little rose came to answer the door. She recognized Peter's voice, and she Peter's voice, and she was so ecstatic that she uh, did not open the gate and just let him 
just staying there outside in the cold. I love that that detail's in there. It's just real. It's like Peter's still knocking, and she just runs back and goes to the people, like, Peter's outside. It's like, why don't you let him in? Because they just think that she's out of her mind when she could have easily just had proof and be like, he's right here. What do you mean? But even they don't believe it. Like, they've been praying for this. They've been praying for Peter to, to come, but it's like, they didn't really think that. I mean, he's got four guys around him all the time. He's chained. Like, there's no way he's getting out of there. Peter's, Peter's done. We need to start thinking about a replacement. Like, Peter, there's no way that he could have gotten out. They don't believe that God could actually do this. But you jump down to verse 16. Peter continues knocking. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James, it's a different James, and to the brothers. And he departed to another place. Tell God of this impossible situation that he has, that he's done, that he's delivered me. Like, the people are tempted in this Passover time, in this Days of Unleavened Bread, to look back at the Exodus and say, based on what I'm seeing right now, there's no way that our God is that same God. Peter's arrested. We're getting killed. We're not being protected. Our, the firstborn son of one of our prominent households, he's wiped out during this event of all, of all times. That's why God comes and delivers Peter in the prison the way that he does. To show that he is the same God. Basically, just in the rest of the the passage, the prisoners, Herod's upset that, that he doesn't understand how these prisoner guards let him go, so they're killed. Then this, the, the point of the, the last section of the text, from, from 20 to 25, really the incident that, that, that they're talking about, we don't have a lot of information about, but what we can see is that the fact that the angel of the Lord shows up again and comes to Herod, and Herod is, is it says, um, where is it, in verse 22, that these people, they're, they're enamored with, with Herod, they're calling him, God and not a man. They're saying that he's like the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod doesn't rebuke them. Like he's sitting on his throne, he's robed, and he's allowing people to just call him God. That's why the angel of the Lord shows up and wipes him out. And really, that picture is similar to the Pharaoh of Egypt, who when Moses first went to to him and said, Let my people go, thus says the Lord... Pharaoh answers, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? This whole scene is just a beautiful picture of our God. And just wherever you are right now in this week, however you came into this service this morning, I just want you to remember who Christ is. That we are Christ's people, even despite what, what you may have, may have faced even this week, that we are those who are covered with the sacrificial lamb, the true sacrificial lamb. And God is entirely for his people, and he will not leave us till the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. 
I thank you, Lord, that you use the ordinary means of grace of just simple people like me and like all the, the people in this room that when we can just get away and, and curl up somewhere and just sit at your feet in your word and just listen, that all that that darkness, that lack of joy that has crept into our hearts, Lord, you can dispel all of that in impossible ways. I just thank you that, that you've given this to us, Lord, that we are not like uh, some of our brothers and sisters around the world who, who clamor over a, a single Bible, Lord, who have to travel miles to heal hundreds of miles to hear a single sermon preached or to read a single book of the Bible. Lord, you have given it to us. It's, it's on our, our shelves. We have it every day where we can hear from you speaking to us loud and clear. And it's through your word that you delight, that it's your good pleasure to give us joy and to give us this unimaginable peace in your presence. Joy and peace that surpass understanding. Lord, I pray that we would just be encouraged this morning. Lord, we have lapsed this week in, in coming to you, lapsed in prayer, and lapsed in reaching out to our brothers and sisters, even here in this congregation, who need a shoulder to lean on, or just need fellowship, just need to be built up. Lord, I pray that we would repent, that you would grant us peace and restoration and cause us to put our hands back to the plow. Lord, just be with us this week. Cause us to fall more deeply in love with the God of our salvation, our glorious King Jesus. It's in His mighty name that we pray.